Thanks for tuning in to The Greenpeace. That's spelt P-I-E-C-E. I'm Warren Green, your host and one of the storytellers of this weekly podcast, where I'll be telling campfire stories about sustainable safaris, misadventures, and travel tales from around the world. I have a number of interesting people, including safari guides, conservationists, lodge managers, and philanthropists lined up to share their stories and expertise with you. So, grab yourself a beverage, sink back into a comfortable chair, and enjoy the next half an hour with me. Welcome home. You you got back, touched ground running, and disappeared again. I did. Um, an interesting opportunity was thrown at me to go down to the Pirama Eco Resort in Venecia, Antioquia, South Colombia, or excuse me, <laughs> Colombia, South America, <laughs> and. Um, I was asked to legitimately see how accessible the eco resort is or what can be done to make it more um, accessible and inclusive to people with physical handicaps. And it just so happened to be attached to the world's tallest natural pyramid, um, which was Cerro Tusa. So of course went and climbed that. And, before, uh, before you go on, t- tell me, what is a natural pyramid? Um, so the structure of this mountain has four sides and it is very steep to a point. Um, very steep. It is uh, by far <clears throat> the most technical climb I've done untechnically. Like I've never been so <laughs> thankful for clumps of grass. Uh, That's literally how I was holding myself on the side of this mountain um, or pyramid. And uh, the grade was definitely steeper than Manitou Incline and there were no steps. So um, very, very difficult. Um, So it gives you quite an appreciation for the strength of grass and their root system and how they can actually anchor soil to the ground and take a lot of strain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, I know that I put my full body weight up on them to climb up on several occasions. Give me just a moment. I apologize. So because because this is a podcast and people are going to be listening in, we've just got to back up a little <clears> bit <throat> and catch up from when we last spoke um, on, on a podcast anyway. And so what I want to do is start off with you and just ask you about the preparations that you had to go through. Um, you know, I've got a little bit of the inside track, obviously, uh, and know that you had sort of call it legal issues uh, revolving around getting your passport. And then you naturally have physical constraints and so had to do a lot of training to get up the mountain. So I'd like to discuss those two aspects with you to get to get us going before we even talk about Tanzania. Um, yeah. So to, talk me through the legalities of getting your passport and the headaches and, and the, the not necessarily the hoops that you had to jump through, but the the proof that you had to provide that you were a, a good citizen and worthy of this expedition and getting an American passport. I had to approach the judge and file a motion and I was requesting termination of my probation status because I'm on supervised probation from 
events that occurred back in 2018, um, three years ago now. And uh, <clears throat> in order to get permission to go over there, I obviously had to ask the judge for permission to terminate my probation status because generally speaking, you can't apply for your passport while you're on probation. Um, and so <clears throat> even though the judge was not able or willing to terminate my status of probation, she was willing to write me a letter giving me permissions to apply for my passport and travel. And so coupled with this letter and some help I received from Annie Oatman Gardner of uh, <clears throat> Senator Michael Bennett's office, um, I was able to get approval for that passport through the federal government and um, then had to file another motion to travel out of the continental United States while on supervised probation. And because my judge had kind of known about this situation on a different motion, um, that was put through the court system pretty fast. But uh, it took acquiring a documentary team and, um, you know, a lot of, um, <clears throat> they wanted to know that this was actually a thing that was happening and not just uh, a joke. <laughs> um, it, it's, they also wanted to ensure that this wasn't just a leisurely trip um, or a trip just for me, you know, um, mm. some kind of vacation. And so going through the rings and proving that to the judge, um, she was able to grant me permission to travel. And so, <laughs> I mean, just with all of that paperwork and that stress, and then you add COVID into the mix. And so everything goes into a drop box and you're kind of in a long waiting pattern with um, offices being understaffed and, um, it, it was very, very stressful. Um, while doing that, I was kind of preparing my gear and altering my pants and um, <laughs> just trying to make sure that I would have everything that I needed um, for my myself and my team's success. And then... Um, <clears throat> My bags got left in Amsterdam. Wait, 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 wait! Don't jump! Don't jump on the journey just yet. Um, so we've we've got we've got you getting your passport, which under normal circumstances I understand takes a couple of weeks. An American passport processing system is quite efficient. Um, I, I've been through that process, and I, I was quite amazed at how quickly it can be done. So what you you had to wait a number of weeks, like up to twelve weeks, before you actually received that document in the mail. Yes. And, and, yes. And while that's going on, you've got to organize airplane tickets and start figuring out your dates to travel. And you've got a limited window of time to, to do this climb because of your guide's availability, et cetera, right? Yeah. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to go. And so it was kind of like stepping out on a plateau and uh, hoping that there's a big parachute 
attached to my back. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not to mention, you've got to find some funding to go and do the strip because you're not exactly able to work and earn a living like most of us can. Exactly. Uh, I had to do a lot of fundraising um, and, you know, work in our community to get the word out that um, this excursion would be happening. Um, and the possible consequences, the uh, uh, obstacles ahead. Well, fantastic. So uh, first obstacle cleared, you got your passport, you got the, the stamp of authority allowing you to go. And I, I guess the next thing is getting that team together. Um, I, I last chatted to you when you had um, a personal trainer involved. And I honestly have forgotten her name and the role that she played. So Take us through that, because I think that was an incredibly important step in your physical <clears throat> preparation and I think mental. Uh, absolutely. Megan helped me out um, through the mental and physical and nutritional aspects of preparation for this climb. So I had partnered with Coach Megan Holmes in the Live Out Loud project back in December or January, and she helped me with the mental, physical, and nutritional um, preparation for this climb of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, I couldn't have done it without her. I'm so glad that I decided to uh, finally get into classically training for something, because um, all my previous climbs I had never trained. And so this was a vital part of me knowing how to compose myself um, and keep pushing through those moments where my endurance doesn't necessarily carry all of the weight. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for people listening in now, um, Kilimanjaro is 19,000 and some feet. Um, so it gets up there where the air gets really thin and your body battles to find oxygen. And obviously, as you all know, you need oxygen to power your muscles. I personally haven't been up Kilimanjaro. I think the, the highest I've been is 13 or so thousand feet. And at, and at that height, you can, you can definitely feel the burden on your body. Um, so it takes quite a bit of getting used to and, and a whole lot of training to go above that. Um, so what Mandy's talking about here is, is getting yourself conditioned for this endurance of climbing a really big mountain. And remember, she's got no legs, so she's going to attempt this climb using her hands, uh, which is, you know, something that's quite phenomenal. I mean, most of us can do a decent day's hike with both legs and feel exhausted at the end of it and rub our bruised feet and blistered toes. Um, but for Mandy, it's about bruised fingers and hands. And, and then, you know, at the end of the day, she needs to feed herself and get herself ready for sleep and that sort of thing. And, and on these worn out hands, it must be hugely challenging. So I would imagine the training aspect is critically important. So I'm glad you got that, uh, that process underway before going. I wasn't too sure how you were gonna manage it, um, but obviously I'm delighted that you did. And so did you make use of your outdoor spaces in Colorado to do a lot of that conditioning work or were you confined to gyms and weightlifting and that sort of thing? Um. You know, the months leading up to going out to Tanzania and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro here in the Front Range, it was a lot of rain. Um, there was still snow at the top of Pikes Peak. And um, 
<laughs> with these kinds of things, I have to consider wear and um, maintaining my hands as much as possible. And so while I went and did the incline a few times, uh, aside from that, I kind of did most of this training indoors uh, here in my apartment. That's incredible. So, I mean, you, you, I want to say you're in a soft space compared to the environment that you're about to expose yourself to. Um, and again, for our, for our listeners who, who are paying attention, if you've ever pulled hard on some sort of a rope, you'll notice that after maybe just a few minutes, if your hands are not conditioned, you start to blister fairly easily. You might even get uh, punctured skin from the rope um, threads that, themselves. Can you imagine doing this for a number of days on your hands? I mean, Mandy, what what did you use? You must have had covering for your fingers and maybe glove-like apparatus. And surely this was worn out. So um, in the mountaineering world, we speak heavily about mistakes that we make in the beginning that affect us later. Um, And in the past, I have wrapped my hands like a boxer. Um, underneath with bandaging and some powder just to keep the hand dry. Of course, I'm going to sweat, but it it helps with, you know, the breakdown on my knuckles and my palms. And so one of the mistakes that I had made in this climb early on was I was so excited the first day and under a lot of pressure, uh, of course, we were going through the rainforest, but I didn't wrap my hands before I put them in these 511 gloves. And so um, definitely got some wear and tear on the knuckles that time. <laughs> okay, listen, we're about to get onto the climb. So, okay, you, you've, you've, you've packed your bags, you've got some gear put together, and I'll go through discussing the gear that you have with you as, as we reach Arusha in terms of this, the way we're telling the tale right now. Um, but I know you had a mishap on the way there. And uh, I, the airlines in, in, in uh, I want to say North America, but I think globally right now, are slowly coming to terms with the renewed demand for seats and travel. Um, and since COVID, they've backed off on a lot of their employment. Uh, they've shut down routes. They've given up some aircraft. They've put them in the desert to rest until the demand is picked up. But I don't think any one of these airlines seriously anticipated the rapidity with which we would return to the skies. And I'm not trying to make up excuses for for anybody or anything, but I do know that there is some slack that needs to be cut their way uh, in some respects. In other respects, they take money from people and in return, they promise a seat of passage and they promise to transfer your material along with you in the hold of the airplane so that the, so that both you and your luggage arrive safely uh, at your destination. But I gather it wasn't quite true for you. Uh, no, <laughs> um, it wasn't. Um, you know, you are correct. Um, they are largely understaffed. Uh, and I don't think that that's just limited to United States. That's on a, a global, um, international basis. It's understaffed. Um, and I don't. I learned so many things from this trip that, uh, you know, for me and my perspective, it 
enlightened me that maybe the Western world isn't prepared or knows how to help people with disabilities. Um, You know, my director of my documentary, he was carrying me on and off planes because otherwise we would have missed connections. And um, at one point I was actually asked to crawl off a plane. Uh, (laughs) um, And it's one thing going out to crawl in mountains and stuff like that, but it's another thing to crawl on the floor board of a plane in the middle of a pandemic. Um, And it just, uh, on the way over to Tanzania, my bags were left in Amsterdam. And so we land in Africa and it's my first time being in another country, super jazzed, go through customs, getting everything figured out there. Nobody um, was unkind or rushed to any degree. which is totally different than uh, what I'm used to over here in America. But uh, (laughs) we got through and I was the first one through to go and check for luggage and everybody else's luggage was there, but mine. And so like a spoiled Westerner, um, I started crying and I was very upset. You know, it was like I, I, I started serious climb in two days um, and I don't have, you know, essential parts of gear that were left in my check bags. I tried to carry on most of my gear and uh, two duffels, but it, it, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and it was kind of interesting because... Uh, you know, like wasn't rude by any standards, uh, but the um, flight crew there in Tanzania and Kilimanjaro National Airport were, were like smiles um, left to right of their face, kind of giggling, waving it off. It'll be okay. And uh, it was really reassuring. And they let me know that they already knew where my bags were. They were left in Amsterdam. And so the next flight would not be until the day after tomorrow, which was um, the night before the climb. (laughs) And (laughs) I I did get those bags about 9 p.m. the night before the climb. And I've got a picture of my little hotel room there at Roro Lodge, just gear everywhere, trying to sort everything and make sure that everything is in its right spot and everything else. And I fell asleep on my hotel floor, packing my stuff, Um, woke up in the morning and uh, had to text Commander Sally and, Francis Cronin, um, a member of my documentary team. And I was like, I have largely dropped the ball today. Um, and we're going to be a little late because I need some help. <laughs> uh, so 
they were able to assist me in getting all of that stuff packed up um, and ready to go. And it was June 10th, the starting day of the climb, which also happened to be my 28th birthday. And somehow the lodge staff found out about this. And so going out to the vehicles, uh, we were presented with singing and a cake and um, a very warm greeting, uh, as well as a send off for us on our excursion that, that's that's pretty magic here mandy i mean for, for again to to just help people understand um you know bursting into tears when your luggage doesn't arrive i, I don't think it's just a spoilt western way or privileged way um here you are in, in a foreign country uh not understanding necessarily at this point the culture you have spent months preparing physically and mentally for this climb, which has got a set of parameters, date parameters. You need to be on the mountain on such and such a date. You've got to be off the mountain on such and such a date. There are teams of people who are involved and supporting you and behind you. And you have to have specialized equipment. It's not as if you can just go to the local outfitting store and get a, a new set of boots or gloves or weatherproof trousers because your body's different. Um, and frankly, you're using gloves on your hands to act as shoes on somebody's feet instead. And these are not items that you can just haul off the shelf and replace. So everything is now looking like a disaster and you're incredibly disappointed. So I get it. And, and I don't think you should be ashamed of the fact that you had a little bit of a wobbly. Um, but how's that African hospitality um, you know, I, I've seen people celebrating their birthdays in and around North America, where you go into a restaurant and the staff get to find out it's your birthday and they whisk up a cake or they bring you a special dessert from the, from... It, there's not even a comparison. <laughs> it's hard and soul, isn't There's not even a comparison. Um, I feel like, gosh, I, I, there's just such a, a happiness um, that exudes from the African people um, and a pure joy to just be there and to celebrate. Um, it was a really, really special thing for me. And um, that, you know, that wasn't even the cake topper for me. Um, throughout this day, like I said, uh, come out of the World War Lodge and here is basically the entire lodge staff and some of our porters for Kilimanjaro singing and dancing happy birthday um, you know and their song and dance and this delicious cake because Tanzanians love cake I have I found out and um, we go and get to the wrong guy gate and it was a privilege to meet some of the Tanapa officers there who wanted to wish us a send off well. And so we took some photos with them and uh, took off through the rainforest. And uh, I was just so excited. I got to crawl on the rainforest floor um, while Colobus monkeys were swinging up above us and uh, this is very, very fascinating for me. Um, I, I feel I feel we've just got to pause a little here because 
um, people around the world who haven't been to Tanzania, who haven't seen the sheer magnificence of Kilimanjaro and hard looms so close to the town of Arusha, uh, which is the gateway to the safari of, you know, in, in northern Tanzania. It's a special place. And, and I suppose describing it is, is really challenging because here, if you say you went to the airport, you drove from the airport to your hotel, one conjures up images of paved roads, um, somewhat <coughs> manicured sidewalks, uh, order, law and order and structure and infrastructure that is good and sound, power lines, telephone lines, uh, and people behaving as they should in terms of the letter of the law, driving their cars at certain speeds, etc. Then you land in Arusha. And... Uh, <laughs> You've got to try and juxtaposition landing in Arusha to arriving at JFK. Uh, and the chaos that bounds JFK, fast-moving cars, yellow cabs, honking people, uh, people shouting and screaming because their Uber is late or because you're in their way because you didn't move your trolley and this bag's too big. And there's just sort of this organized chaos and madness going on around you. And then you land at Arusha, which is an international airport. It's made out of brick, wide open corridors, little couple of cafes here and there. But you essentially get ushered through by a very warm, welcoming, happy staff. There's no stress. There's no where your documents, have you got this, have you got that? You don't feel this incredible pressure of, am I on the right side or the wrong side of the law? Am I going to get thrust into jail because I looked at the wrong person the wrong way type thing? That customs official is almost gracious and glad to see you and put his stamp on your passport and usher you through. And then you get out onto the other side. And first of all, the thing that struck, struck strikes me every time is the sort of balmy feeling to the climate, the new smell and nuance of this ancient African seeing the big trees that surround you, maybe the inflorescences there with their red plants. I remember stopping my videographer um, on my team and I, I, I looked at him and I was like, Africa actually smells like elephants. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> and this is like very shortly after we had landed, uh, they were asking me questions out in the parking lot and I was just like, Africa actually smells like elephants. He goes, what do you mean? And I was like, they, they just, they have a smell. Uh, I don't know. It, it's uh, not a bad thing, but you can smell them. It's a natural thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then so when you get onto the roads and you make your way to Arusha, you, you're passing people who are riding bicycles and scooters and uh, packed cheek by jowl into minivans. And on the roofs of the minivans are suitcases and chickens and goats and it's just this buzz of activity. Um, people are industrious and getting on with stuff. Other people are lounging along the side of the road, waiting for something to happen in their day. It's just a, it's a, such a departure from our world over here. Uh, and it's, it's in a way, it kind of makes you, it forces you to look at life and think, hmm, maybe slowing down is not a bad thing. Maybe slowing down is more fun than the pace we try and live at. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, that that was a big culture shock for me. Um, growing up in the Midwest, the most I ever seen of Africa, um, you know, was on television, maybe a spotlight of the Serengeti 
um, some work that Steve Irwin did over there, or <clears throat> of course the infomercials for the poor starving African children. And I, I'm not discounting that that's not the case in the more rural parts of Africa, more desolate parts of Africa, but um, that's not what I witnessed at all. Um, mm. You know, it, it was very much a less is more vibe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Carl would tell us about, you know, the food falling from the trees. And if you're hungry, it's just because you wouldn't go out to the trees. <laughs> and he's right, you know. Um, something else I found amazing uh, over here what we have corn they call maize mm -hmm. but we get one crop of that a year because of our climate and they get sometimes three to four in one year and um, <clears throat> just going down a street uh, a rural street and seeing all the kids that will come out of their homes uh, or from their grandparents side and go and wave and, you know, hi, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's otherworldly. Um, yeah. And I don't think that it's uh, third worldly. I think it's just that they have something figured out that we don't. Uh, we have, I was trying to explain to Whitey, um, Julius John White, one of the commanders and my main teammate for the Kilimanjaro expedition. I was trying to explain to him that in America, you can go to one store, a chocolate store, and there be 300 different choices or options. And he, he couldn't wrap his mind around it. Um, <laughs> and it just, it really blew my mind as to being enlightened to how much of Western anxiety and busyness is created out of having these multiple options. Um, yeah, interesting observation there. It really, it really is though. Uh, you have. I mean, you go down an aisle in Walmart uh, to pick out, <clears throat> for instance, some beauty products. Um, so you go to get shampoo and conditioner. And here in America, you, you go down this aisle and sometimes there's two aisles because one's not enough. And then you have several different brands competing for your attention, your focus. And, and it's just, it's overwhelming it's anxiety inducing. You go to the grocery store in Arusha and here was a, a moment for me that meant a lot. Um, for the first time in eight years of being an amputee, I was helped in a grocery store by an employee without any word or asking anything um, in Arusha in Tanzania, Africa. Um, I was there at the cooler, I turn around and there's a gentleman with a basket and he's offering to push it around for me. 
I'd never experienced something like that in the Western world. And you don't have thousands of options for the one thing that you really need. If it's just shampoo and conditioner, do you really think that there's that much variation <laughs> in each of these products? Uh, it, it, I, I, yeah, I, I grew a heavy appreciation for how life is out there. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful Zulu word called um, Ubuntu, which I think is the word that describes what you, you were exposed to. And very simply translated means I am because we are. And essentially, it, it's really about humanity, uh, humanity and, and humility towards one another. And I think that kind of is very central to, and I, I want to generalize hopelessly here and say the African culture, but you've experienced it. And, you know, you speak of that man offering to help you in the grocery store. And I've witnessed it here. I've sometimes myself felt awkward in the company of somebody who's not the same as me and not really known what the appropriate behavior would be. But you would have found in Africa that that man would have offered help in such a way that he wasn't, um, he wasn't dominating you. He was just simply being a person and recognizing you for being another person that potentially wanted help. And he would have offered it in such a way that you, you didn't feel obliged to say, no, thank you, or yes, please. It was just... Yeah, I, I love that observation because it is the warmth that is that prevails down on that continent. It it was a remarkable experience for me. Um, I, I'm glad that Tanzania was my first uh, destination out of the country. I, I'm glad you said you're first because that implies that you're going to be going back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I would love to be going back to Tanzania. I, I would love to spend some more time there. I did get to, after Mount Kilimanjaro, get to go out to the Serengeti for about a week. And then instead of uh, just flying back, we decided to drive back um, through the desolate Maasai country. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to and stop you again because you're jumping my gun. Let's get up the mountain first. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I, I tend to pause on some of these intricate moments, which I think really help people to appreciate and understand that this journey that you've been on, yes, it's about climbing this beast of a mountain, this beautiful mountain. But uh, I think there's a whole lot of self-realization and, and personal growth that takes place at the same time. Um, who knows? I, I'm, I'm going to hopefully discover that. And also maybe we'll be exposed to Mandy Horvath in the flesh when we get to watch your documentary. But okay, so you get to the Rongai uh, gate and you know, you've met the park rangers, you're ready to go up this mountain. How many of you are in this climbing team? Um, and I know, I know that you were determined to summit on your hands without help. Um, you can walk on prostheses, but your, your attitude was no, I'm going to do this on my hands. 
basically because as you got higher up the mountain, those prosthetics would become inefficient and possibly even seize up on you and also cause you injury because they, they're not really good for mountaineering. And so the option was only one really, and, and that was to scale it on your hands, which meant longer time, bigger crew, I assume, I don't know. So tell me, tell me about A, the, the route that you ultimately decided to do and how many people set off on this route with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 